Father, we are so thankful for you and what you have done through your son, Jesus. Father, we are wretched sinners who fail and have failed and are so wicked, Lord God, and yet you sent your son, Jesus, and he willingly came and died for our sins and paid the full penalty. And I thank you so much that in Jesus Christ, I do, and those who have trusted in him have forgiveness of sins. Father, we are so thankful for that, and may you be glorified in our heart attitudes towards you and towards others, Lord God. And Father, now as we look into your word, we know that you've given it to us, certainly to reveal Jesus, but also to grow us in respect to salvation. I pray that that would be done, that we would be willing participants, uh, letting your word work in us that which is pleasing. So we thank you for this time and commit it to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what would you share with believers that you loved dearly if it was the last time that you were going to see them? If you knew for some reason you were going to die or you would never see them again? Uh, what about a shepherd of, of, and a flock? What would a shepherd say to a flock uh, that uh, it, he would never see again? Certainly there would be those things that would be uh, personal and those things in terms of the relationship they have. And what, would, what would one's last words be? Well, what about the Apostle Peter? Indeed, we know in Scripture, having denied the Lord three times, that after the Lord had risen from the dead, he restored Peter in the context of love. And he commanded him to feed his sheep. And Peter had been faithful to that calling. And now the Lord had made it clear to him that the laying aside of his earthly dwelling was imminent. Chapter 1, verse 14. Peter is going to be at the Lord very soon. And so these are his last words inspired by the Spirit to the flock, the body of Christ. And it's within these last words we come to the last words within the last words of this letter, uh, Peter sharing to the body of Christ. You'll notice, although he shares throughout this letter he's going to be at the Lord, there's not a lot of personal stuff. It's more so what is most important to believers. He shares certainly that they're beloved, but he shares the most important thing. Now today I believe we're going to see within these last words, these final commands of Peter, how not to shipwreck your walk with Jesus Christ. If you think about a shipwreck, a ship's cruising along fine, all of a sudden hits a rock, whatever it might be, runs aground, the ship is no longer able to function or it might even sink. Uh, and we're going to see how not to shipwreck your walk with Jesus Christ because there are a lot of shipwrecked believers in the body of Christ you know, we saw earlier that many would follow uh, the sensuality of the false guys. Many believers would get caught up in those things, and certainly the Lord God does not want that to happen. So we're going to see final commands from a loving shepherd. Turn with me in your Bibles to the last portion of Second Peter chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 15 through 18 through the end. Now we have seen, uh, as I've mentioned before, that Peter is writing to believers those who have the same faith as the apostles have. You see, if you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you have the same faith the apostles had. A faith in Jesus Christ that brought about forgiveness of sins. And we've seen simply that this book is about growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and then being protected from threats to our relationship with Jesus Christ, which is based on his word. We saw that, and as Bob read earlier, we have been given everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him. We have his precious and magnificent promises. We have his word which he uses to make us like his son. And within that, we see that we should be growing in that relationship with the Lord God, that we would be neither useless or unfruitful in the true knowledge of him and our relationship with him. And Peter is always ready to remind them, always ready to remind them to stir them and to stir us up by way of reminder that we may be able to call these things to mind after his departure. And then at the end of chapter 1, he, as he reminds them, he shows them the absolute reliability of the written word, the surety of the scriptures. And we see that in the last letters of those uh, apostles. We see in the apostle Paul, all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for him. We'll see every good work. And in Peter's last letter, he affirms the, the profitability of the scriptures and that they are not from man but from God and that we do well to heed it. We do beautifully if we obey and respond to God uh, via his word. And after that, we saw in chapters 2 and 3 that there are threats to the word of God. Peter could have said, hey, this is the last time I'm talking to you and, you know, so-and-so, I miss you here, I miss you that. No, he didn't say that. 
He gets to the reality of what is most important before he goes to the Lord. And as a faithful shepherd who was charged to feed the sheep, he not only shares what's the most important thing, that we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, but that there will be threats to the means in which we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, which is the word of God. There will be those who arise among you, chapter 2. They will twist and pervert uh, God's word. They will follow after their own lust. They will enjoy and delight in deceiving believers. But you can spot them by their deeds. They are springs without water. Uh, They portray themselves as those who will feed you spiritually in your walk with Jesus. But ultimately, you get nothing. There's no water. Because they're actually manipulating you by your own desires to think that you're following Jesus, but for their own benefit as you follow uh, their ways. And in their greed, they will exploit you, obviously, as we will see with false words. They portray themselves to be those who would feed you, but they're not. They're greedy fakers, as we saw, on their way to hell. They knew the truth of God. They knew the truth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But they have rejected that internally, and they've gone back to their, as even the passage talks about, their own vomit, like a dog that returns to his vomit, ultimately going back to fulfill their own desires because they're not saved. But yet they know what it looks like, and they use that to manipulate and deceive people. But their destruction is sure. Uh, their, their, their place in black darkness is reserved for them. God does not miss a beat. And then we came to chapter 3, where we saw Peter continues to share that he is reminding them. He's reminding them of the truth, first of all, that came from the holy prophets, and then the commandment of our Lord and Savior that came through his apostles. That we would be knowing something, knowing this, first of all, that mockers will come in the last days. There are going to be those who actually mock God's word. They will, they will, whether it's subtly or whether outright directly, they will mock God's word and they will share with, uh, with people, where's the promise of his coming? Everything's the same since the world began. Nothing's changed. They're going to try to get you to look at things that you can observe rather than believing the truth of God. We saw that, but that, but yet we know Peter makes it clear that this present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved, verse 7 of chapter 3, kept for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. We saw in chapter 3, verse 10, that this is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. God is going to judge sinful man and sinners, but God is patient, not willing for any to perish. We should not let this one fact escape our notice. The bad guys let the truth of what God has already said and done willingly escape their notice, but we should not let this escape our notice that God's not on our timetable. A day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. But God is patient towards us, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God is a gracious God, but yet the promise of his coming will be fulfilled. And within that promise, there's a lot of events over some period of time, seven years we see, and then also then we have the millennium, thousand-year reign of Christ. Then we have judgment. Then we have this first heavens and earth being destroyed and a new heavens and new earth. God is not slow about his promise, but we look forward to something. We look forward to a new heavens and earth where righteousness dwells. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more death. We look forward to that. And we desire Christ to come. And within that, we see that we are to be looking for that. But yet we ought to be living differently now if this is the reality of what God is going to do towards sin and sinners, having sent his son to die for our sins. We should be diligent then to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. That means we should be walking in a way in which we are walking in holy conduct and godliness, walking with him by his spirit, through his power, trusting in him so that we will be found, we'll be found by him in a way that is glorifying to him. And not only are we to be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, verse 14, we are also to regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation. The delay in Christ's coming to bring forth judgment is because he is saving people. It is salvation. The only reason he hasn't come, the only reason we're not ultimately in eternity with him on our way to that new heavens and earth is because he is saving people. And so we should be looking forward and hastening the day of the Lord, this day in which he comes, right? And so with that, we have these last two commands here, be diligent to be discovered and found by Jesus in peace, spotless and blameless, and then regard 
the time in which we are in when Christ hasn't come yet as salvation. And it's from this point we come to the end of the chapter, which is connected to what I've just summarized. So again, turn your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 15 to 18, and we're going to see how not to shipwreck your walk with Christ. I'm going to go back just a verse here, but I've kind of summarized what we've seen already. Verse 14, chapter 3 of 2 Peter. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation. And now we start our passage. Just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of, of these things, in which some things are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort to their own as distort as they do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest lest being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Tremendous closing to the book. The most important things he can say, it is his final words within his final words. And as we've been seeing here, he's pointing out the reality of false teachers and the danger of those, those who would affect and, and twist the word of God or distort the word of God, and that we need to be aware because we could be tripped up. Believers, beloved, could be tripped up. There will be many that come into the church, and we're going to see today some examples of what's going on in the church these days, that true believers are getting caught up and being tripped up in their walk because of bad guys sharing wicked things or distorting the word of God. So with this in mind, we're going to see that he finishes with two imperative commands for us. Two commands. He doesn't just say, love you all, see you later. He does say, beloved. He gives us two commands that are very important. One is to guard ourselves. Be on the guard. The other one is to grow. Is to grow. We are to guard and to grow. That is what we need to do, as we're going to see in our relationship with Jesus Christ Let's take a look first at that first command. Notice we're continually commanded to be on guard against those who will twist the word of God so that we will not fall. We know beforehand that in the church, bad guys will omit, lessen, mock, distort the word, especially the difficult passages. Notice the middle of verse 15. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. As also in all his letters, speaking in them of things which, in which some things are hard to understand, in which the untaught and unstable distort as they do the rest of the scriptures. And then we'll see it's to their own destruction. So here, he refers, Peter refers to the apostle Paul. Now we don't know specifically uh, why, the exact reason why he shares him by name. We can speculate that maybe some were discrediting what Paul had written from, as scripture. He's going to show that it truly is. But Peter's going to share the reality that bad guys twist and torture the word of God for their own gain. And not only do they do it to what Peter's saying, they will do it to what Paul has said, and specifically the difficult passages as they do the rest of the scriptures. And Peter says, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote. Now, specifically, initially, he's referring to what Peter had been writing about. Peter had been writing about the coming of Christ. Peter had been writing about mockers who had come. Peter had been writing about God's patience before destruction, right? His salvation. And he says, just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote you. Obviously, we're coming into the middle of the verse, but he's referring to what he's spoken to throughout chapter 3. And what's interesting, I want to make some interesting uh, observations how he describes Paul. He says, our beloved brother Paul. Peter was a mature believer in Jesus Christ, led by the Spirit. He had grown up in Christ. You might, you may or may not know, but the Apostle Paul had actually reproved Peter in Galatians chapter 2 publicly. You would think Peter might have been offended or been harder to win than a strong city. That's not the case. Peter is a godly brother in Christ who obviously received the Apostle Paul's reproof and had no issues towards Paul. 
He said, our beloved brother Paul, as he has written you. And so within that, we see the apostle Peter sharing our beloved brother Paul. And he speaks of me, he says, just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you. He's saying the same things I wrote to you are just like what Paul wrote to you. Just like what Paul wrote to you. And notice something very interesting. Let's look at verses 15 through 16. I want you to notice this. Just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, we'll look at that in a minute, wrote to you as also in all his letters, or you could say the word epistle, that's what's being used here in Greek, speaking in them of things which some, in which some are hard to understand, to understand which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do what? The rest of the scriptures. If you look at this sentence, the Apostle Peter is certainly equating his writing, and he is equating the writing of Paul, all his letters, as the scriptures. The term scriptures means written word, graphe. It's what we've seen. And he is saying that what Paul wrote is the scriptures. It's the word of God. It's the word of God. He says, the Apostle Paul, our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you. You see, Paul didn't just think up stuff and write it down and send letters to the churches. The Apostle Paul was inspired by the Spirit to bring forth the Word of God as an apostle, laying forth part of the foundation, Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. Let's take a look at a few passages. Look at Galatians chapter 1. Galatians 1, verse 11. Galatians 1, 11. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And then turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. See, Peter says in our passage, according to the wisdom given to him. Paul was given wisdom from God. He was given wisdom and ultimately the word through that. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. For I delivered to you, this is Paul writing, of, of first importance of what I also received. Received. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Turn back a little bit in 1 Corinthians to chapter 2. Chapter 2. The Apostle Paul comes basically saying, hey, we've got nothing to boast in but Christ." And the way we came to you, Corinthians, we were in fear and trembling. We didn't come with superior speech speaking the testimony of God. We didn't come like you would expect and exalt as you are. He didn't say that. But he says, we didn't speak man's wisdom, that your faith wouldn't rest on, or God's wisdom of man, but that your faith would rest on men. Notice what he says in verse 6 of chapter 2. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which is predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye have not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him, for to us... God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. We see here that Paul brought forth God's wisdom. It was God's word. We know from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, he thanks uh, and constantly thanks God that the Thessalonians didn't uh, accept what they received as the word of men, but the word of God, which what it was what it really is. Back to our passage in uh, in Second Peter, and as you're going there, put your finger in chapter 3 and go back to chapter 1. Second Peter 1, verse 20. This is what Peter says. He says, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Spirit spoke from God. And then back to our passage, middle of verse 15, chapter 3. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, 
wrote to you. God brought forth his word through the Apostle Paul. And his word pointed to the realities of what Peter is saying here too. There's no contradictions between what Peter says and what Paul says. They are from the same God by the same spirit. And the Apostle Paul certainly relayed the reality for godly living in the midst of God's coming judgment and the future that believers have in Jesus Christ. Let me give you one example. He says, just as our beloved brother Paul shared, go to Romans chapter 13. We have the exhortation in light of the day almost being gone to live differently as believers. Because of what God is doing and what he will do, it should motivate us to be aware of our actions and then trust and obey the Lord and allow him to function through us. Romans chapter 13, verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. And this do, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone. This night of sin and darkness. He's using metaphoric language. And the day is at hand. The day in which righteousness dwells, where Christ is on the throne. And he says here, Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not carousing, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity or in sensuality, not in strife or jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, Paul wrote of the same thing, holiness and righteous behavior in light of Christ's coming. You can see this also in 1 Thessalonians 5 and in other passages that Paul has written this truth. The reality of Christ coming in judgment, but also coming to bring in and usher in a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells should motivate us to live differently and to look for that coming, to hasten, Lord Jesus, come. So with that in mind, notice also back in our passage that he now, move, he now moves from this point to sharing what Paul wrote to share the reality that bad guys are going to manipulate all the scriptures and they're going to go after the difficult ones like they do in what Paul wrote. Verse 16, chapter 3. As also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things. That's what I shared, right? Of these things in which some things are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do also the rest of the scriptures. There are portions within Paul's writing that Peter reveals that are difficult to understand. He didn't say you can't understand it. He said they are difficult. Some things are very clear. The Spirit of God illumines those things and helps us understand. Some things are difficult. They take study. It takes work and dependence on the Lord Jesus to understand the truth of God. And within the Apostle Paul, there are some things that he wrote that Peter says are hard to understand. I can think of passages that are hard to understand. I can think of how people have distorted those, by the way. Passages that are hard to understand. Peter isn't saying you can't understand. He's saying there are some that are hard to understand. And those are some of those that they go after, as they do with the rest of the Scriptures. You see, when we come to the Word of God, brothers and sisters, we must come in complete humility, not in prideful arrogance, not feeling sorry for yourself you can't understand, but trusting the Lord. Though they are difficult, we need to come within that with humility before the Lord as the psalmist prayed, teach me thy statutes you know i come to my study each week not assuming that i understand it or know it saying lord god i don't know what this means in help me understand help me share exactly what you meant i i recognize apart from his interjection and intervention into my study i will not understand truly what it is his spirit needs to illumine the truth of god and i need to have a right heart as i study and share second timothy two fifteen. Uh, Timothy was told to study to show himself approved, handling accurately the word of truth. There's study involved. There's work, but not mechanical work. 
know, it's interesting. Sometimes the how to study class we have, some people take it mechanically. That's not it. There is a process to do, but it's in the context over and over, as I shared, of complete dependence. Lord God, I can't understand. You need to open my heart and my mind. And so he says, basically, there are difficult passages that the bad guys, as we see here, and we'll look at it in a minute, distort, distort as they do the rest of the scriptures. And I'll give you an example of some difficult passages. First Corinthians chapter 12, verses or 12 through 14. That's a difficult passage on tongues and, and those things. It is difficult. You can't just read through that casually and get an understanding right away. It takes diligent study. It may take an, even a pastor teacher to, to equip you to understand so that you would not be thrown back and forth. Now, we can understand the word on our own, but God has also given us those to equip us. It's a difficult passage. And within the church, I'm not talking about saying people that fall into these things are not believers. I'm saying there are those who would twist it and distort it and people would fall into wrong doctrine or things. We see that in the area of tongues. We see that in the area of passages that are turned to cause people to who are, who are spiritually self-reliant and lazy to be taken captive. If you are spiritually self-reliant and you are lazy in the word, you will be taken captive. You're going to be a target for those who would distort the word of God and you might fall from your own steadfastness. Own steadfastness. Notice what he says here. He says, just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of things in which some things are hard to understand. Then notice what he says, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do also the rest of the scriptures. This is a warning. The difficult passage, they also distort the rest of the word too, but this is a warning. Now this term distort is a very vivid word. If you were a Greek speaker and you heard this word, you go, oh, it's a very vivid word. It speaks of twisting or wrenching a limb on an instrument made for torture called the rack. Distorting the word. They're twisting it. They're twisting it to its own destruction. The point is the twisting is causing damage. They're distorting. You could translate this word torture. But figuratively speaking, it is speaking of twisting or distorting the word. And there is this element of destruction behind it. The person who is involved is going to be affected by it. They distort as they dist- the untaught and unstable distort as they do the rest of the scriptures. Now, we've seen already in chapter 2 and throughout 3 that there will be false teachers. Peter has made that clear. Look back in chapter 2 verse 1. There are going to be bad guys in the church. In the church. 2 Peter 2.1, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers, pseudo-teachers, among you. That's in the church. Who will what? Secretly. It's not outright, even though he gave an outright example in chapter 3, but they'll secretly do it, even to the point of denying. They're very sly. Secretly introduce destructive heresies, and even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves, and many will follow. There's a lot of believers that are shipwrecked. Many will follow. There's such. Doesn't mean they're not saved, but a lot of believers who've been shipwrecked by bad teaching. And he says here, many, many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. But their judgment is from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And then look down after we see they secretly induce destructive heresies with their sensual teaching and exploit with false words. Look at verse 17, chapter 2. These are springs without water, mists driven by a storm, for whom black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, that's emptiness, they entice by fleshly desires. That's how they go at you, by the way. We saw that in chapter 2. By sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in air. Promising them freedom. They promise you freedom in the context of Jesus. 
while they themselves are slaves of corruption, for why for by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. These guys appear to be giving you a meal in the word, but they don't give you anything. They give you arrogant, empty words, and they entice your flesh. They promise you freedom, but that freedom leads you to enslavement. Temporal enslavement, by the way, if you're a believer. Temporal. And then in chapter 3, we saw uh, that they would be mockers. They would mock God's promises. They would follow after their own lusts. These wicked men and women appear to be teaching God's word, but ultimately give a pass, as we see, for licentiousness or for sensuality, for people to follow their own desires, but think they're following Jesus. You can follow your own desires, but think you're following Jesus. And how do they do it? They twist or torture the scripture. They twist the word of God. They use the word. That's the danger. They're not just saying they use the word of God, by the way, and they twist it. They twist it. Bad guys distort the word of God. And this distortion can go even to the extreme of denying his promises, right out, where is the promise of his coming? Or denying the Lord Jesus, as we saw, even denying the master who bought them. We see this throughout the church these days. You can read it in the books, The Purpose-Driven Life, Purpose-Driven Church. You can, If you were to read those books and read your Bible rightly, you would see that this man has twisted and distorted the Scriptures to go after your desires. This is false teaching, folks. And there are believers, true believers, who get their faith shipwrecked. And when I talk about this, I'm not talking about... I'm talking about the people who are doing it. There are real believers underneath, many who get caught up and get messed up by the distortion of the Word of God. If you read that and don't read it, but if you did, you would see these misquoting Scripture. He's twisting Scripture. It's being twisted. It's being distorted. There's all sorts of things. We see some charismatic churches promoting healing and experience, twisting the Word of God, while speaking of the sufficiency of the Word. They actually twist. And there are many spiritual casualties. There are believers in there, and there are many spiritual casualties focused ultimately on experience and healing. God can heal, but he gets people, these bad guys get people focused on those things rather than on Christ. It's very subtle. It's very subtle. We see it, uh, we talked about emotion. What about reason? We see subtle attacks on the gospel through perversions of theology. We see Reformed teachers who misapply the Word of God to leave out the promises of God. They don't believe in the promise of Israel being saved. That's a pretty big promise to leave out, by the way. That's a pretty big promise. They twist the Word concerning concerning um, regeneration. There's a lot of believers that are listening to things that are slightly drawing them away, whether it's emotion or reason. So throughout here, we see that there's going to be bad guys. Back in our passage, chapter 3, verse 15, just also as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him or given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of things in which some things are hard to understand. By the way, those are hard. Some passages are hard that they twist, by the way. Hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort or twist or torture as they do the rest of the scriptures. Now you might be saying, I'm kind of confused. I saw over in chapter 2, these guys seem to be using the word. They seem to know of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but here it calls them the untaught and unstable. What does that mean? Is it referring to a different group of people here? Well, folks, I believe in the context of 2 Peter, there's no way we can see it as anyone else than who he's been speaking about the entire time. So why does he call them untaught and unstable? It appears they're pretty slick. It appears they know the word of God. They're actually twisting the scriptures, right? Right? Well, first of all, I believe he's stating reality concerning these people so that we would see uh, in contrast to what they make themselves out to be. They make themselves out to be stable and taught in the word, but they're not. But they're not. The term untaught actually comes from the term learner or disciple. It's negated. It could be mean not being one, not being a learner. 
not being a Montano, not being one who is taught, not being one who is taught. The term unstable speaks of double-minded. We saw that concerning believers in chapter 3. These are the ones they go after, tossed back and forth, but they themselves are unstable, untaught and unstable. You see, I think ultimately Peter's point is to try to make the point that they really don't exhibit the characteristics they portray. They are untaught and unstable. They are not learned followers, disciples of Jesus, who are stable in their walk. They are not. They are untaught and unstable, and they distort the Scriptures. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, we see Paul speaks of those who have a form of godliness, yet have denied its power, which we're commanded to avoid. He says, they are always learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They never come to it. They never come to it. 2 Timothy 3, 7. So then these bad guys seem to know the truth and have internally rejected it. They're pretty sly. How they mold the words. They actually appear to be those who are very well taught, very stable. They appear to be fountains bringing forth tremendous meals and, and, and refreshment in, in Scripture. But yet it's empty. It's empty. Although they appear to be learned, they've never come to the knowledge of the truth. And they've ultimately not. And guess what? They will be destroyed. Look in the end of verse 16. Actually, I'll read 16 again. As also in all his letters, speaking in them of things in which some things are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort or twist, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. They take the bad parts, they take the hard parts, excuse me, and twist those, but they also do the rest. And notice what he says, to their own destruction. These are not believers. Peter's saying they're not believers. Now, believers are being led astray, as we're going to see, and we're going to be told to watch out and be on guard because we could be led astray. It's in the church, but these guys are not believers. They are those who are going to be eternally destroyed. It is an extremely serious, serious thing to twist the word of God and to and to bring a different gospel or to, to be a false teacher. We see the, the, the horrible realities of, of what God has said will happen to those who do such. Look back in chapter 2. Back to chapter 2. Verse 3. And in their greed, they will exploit you. They'll do business with you. They're bad business. By Remember we saw that? With, they'll exploit you with false words or molded words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. They're, they're on their way to judgment. God doesn't miss it. Just like he didn't miss uh, the angels and those in Sodom and Gomorrah. He didn't miss it. He didn't miss them. Look down in verse 9 of chapter 2. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority, daring self-willed. What about verse 12? But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Don't worry about it. Don't you go out and try to fight it. You just stay away from it. God's going to take care of it. Don't be a false teacher hunter. Go, stay away from it. We're to stay away and be on guard. God's going to take care of them. Look at verse 17. These are springs without water, mist driven by a storm, for whom black darkness has been reserved. Peter has thoroughly warned us concerning false teachers who will distort the word ultimately by their own, to their own destruction. We've been warned. They will appear to be following Jesus. They will arise among you. And ultimately, in some way or another, they will give license to sin in a very subtle way in which you think you're following Jesus. They've turned the grace of God into licentiousness. And therefore, notice our passage says we are to be on guard. We are commanded at this point because we know something beforehand. Verse 17, back in chapter 3. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness. This is to believers. 
This is too beloved. Peter's not just saying, it's the last time I'm going to see you, I love you so much, and I will miss you for a long time, and we'll see each other in heaven. He's not saying that. He's saying what's most important. He's a faithful shepherd. He's a faithful shepherd. He says, you therefore, knowing this beforehand. Knowing what? That there will be those who distort the word of God especially the passages that are difficult, as they do the rest of the Scriptures. There's going to be those just like he has described. Knowing this beforehand, beloved, he says, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, and then we have a command. Be on your guard. Be on your guard. This is God commanding us, and if we don't obey God, we'll always suffer. You know, if you disobey God, you will suffer. We see examples of that throughout Scripture where Israel didn't obey God and take out all the inhabitants of the land and there were thorns on their side, right? We see example of Solomon not obeying God in terms of his wives and horses and we see what happened. The kingdom was divided, right? Horrible consequences. Be on your guard. Be on your guard. It speaks of the activity of a watchman. It says, and it's in a continual sense, be continually habitually guarding or on your guard. Be on your guard. It's the beloved. It's believers. It's to believers. Believers. Those who are loved by Christ and love one another. Beloved. He has warned us that which is going to come into the church, and since we know it beforehand, continually, habitually be guarding. Now, this is to the whole body of Christ here in Second Peter, by the way. The Apostle Paul in Acts actually spoke to the elders concerning this. Turn to Acts chapter 20. Now, being on your guard doesn't mean you're a finger pointer. Being on your guard means you're watching out, you're addressing the word of God, you're examining to see if it is so, you're, you're, you're testing those things, you're, you're, you're understanding the word, right? You recognize there will be those who twist it, so you're aware and you're on your guard. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Paul shares his last words to the Ephesian elders there in Miletus. It says, be on your guard for yourselves and for all the flock which the Holy Spirit, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Verse 29, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise. That's pretty scary. People will arise, right? Among your own selves. And know what he says here, speaking twisted things, perverted things. They're twisting the word of God, right? To draw away disciples after them. They want you to follow them, right? Therefore, be on your alert, remembering night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Now, Paul was warning the elders in that passage, but we have been warned here and know beforehand, knowing this beforehand. There's going to be those who twist the word of God, lessen the reality of sin. They're going to turn God's grace into subtly into a license to sin or be fleshly, twisting God's word to cause you to follow after your desires rather than God's will, to give you a pass, to, and to think you're following Jesus. And I'll tell you right now, as what I've seen where people have bought into twisted uh, doctrine and things, they actually think they're following Jesus. They actually think they're doing the right thing. They have been deceived. They've been deceived. Back in our passage, verse 17. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard. And here's the warning. Lest being carried away by the Arab unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness. Here's the warning. Being carried away, it's an impassive voice. It speaks of being taken along. Think of some, you know, like a, like a, like a raft that goes into the river. It's carried away by the, by the, by the current. Being carried away by the air of unprincipled, determined principles, that same cognate of licentious or lawless, of licentious or lawless men. The air of these people. Be on your guard lest you get carried away. The first step is being carried away by these things. You see it happen emotionally or intellectually where God's word is subtly twisted, but it, it feeds your flesh and it, and it draws you away. It carries you away. Be on guard. That doesn't happen. Guard over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. And there's a consequence. If you do get carried away, 
He says here, and you fall from, or you fall from your own steadfastness. The term fall here is an interesting word. It can certainly speak of falling away and falling out of something. But it also was used as a nautical term. We see it in the book of Acts, which speaks of a ship that drifts off course, driven into the rocks and driven aground. Be on your guard, lest your walk with Jesus is drawn away and driven into the rocks. And it's destroyed, basically. No, you'll still be saved if you're truly saved. But your walk in that moment will be shipwrecked. Shipwrecked. And how it's done is through bad guys who twist the word of God to cater to your desires. All in the context of following, quote-unquote, Jesus. That you would fall from your own steadfastness. Interesting, your own steadfastness. You see, in Jesus Christ, we are all individually firm in a position of stability. When we trust in Jesus Christ, we are stable. When we walk with Jesus Christ, we are stable because of Christ. But if we are carried away passively by our own desires, as we entertain error, our relationship with Jesus is shipwrecked, and we are no longer stable or steadfast. And that is happening throughout the church. Many will follow their desires, right? Many, many. Folks, we are being warned. These are Peter's last words. He considers it very important, inspired by the Spirit of God. And he is sharing it that we can bring it to mind after he's departed and he is gone now. We have it in the Word. There is the very real possibility for a believer to shipwreck their faith for a time. That's what he's saying. It's possible. And maybe some of you have had your faith shipwrecked. You have bought into things that are not biblical, that that fed your desires. You got carried away by it. You need the Word of God placed over those things that you were carried away by, that error, to show that error, and you need to confess it. Lord God, I allowed myself to be carried away by error, and I confess it. And God will forgive you, and he will restore you, and you will be set up firm and movable in the Lord. There's the very real possibility we could be carried away. And if you have, confess, and the Lord will forgive you. And you will be restored, because he's a good God. He's a good God. And folks, we see this throughout our modern-day evangelical, seeker-sensitive churches that twist the word in the, under the guise of evangelism. They twist the doctrine of the church from Scripture under the guise of evangelism. Get everybody in church to save them, and then they don't share the word of God because you might offend those who aren't saved. That's not right. That's twisting the word of God. And guess what? The sheep are not fed then. If you've fallen into that, even thinking it was right, Examine the word of God, and if it exposes error, then confess and turn away from it. Be on your guard. Don't let it happen. Don't be shipwrecked. And the key to understanding whether you have been or whether you will be is are you listening to twisted truth, scripture being twisted, error from those who are twisting it for their own desire. Take the word of God and put it over it and do the right thing. Do the right thing. Beloved, don't let this happen to you. Obey the command. And I'm not talking about false teacher hunting. Just examining the Word of God. Just examining and being built up in it. Being built up. Being mature so that you will be able to discern good and evil. Not being tossed to and fro, being built up that you would be discerning. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard. Lest being carried away by the Arab and principled men, you fall from your own steadfastness. You could just picture and see that happening, right? Guard your hearts. All of us are commanded to do so. Every single one. Take heed, you who stand, lest you fall. You know, whenever somebody says to me, I'd never do that. We've had people come here and say to Bob and I, we're never going to leave that church. And I go, oh, oh. Never say never. Trust the Lord. Don't think, if you think you stand, you might fall. Folks, we are all commanded, we are all commanded to be on guard. Be on guard. We'll notice there's a second and the last final command, which is a corollary to this. Verse 18 in chapter 3, and it's wonderful. It's the key of this book. It's the center of it. But, in a sense, rather than being 
taken astray and pulled away by your own desires and, and shipwrecked. Instead of that, this is what we are to do. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Instead of falling, not being on guard, not heeding the warnings, we are to grow. We are to grow. The term grow means grow. Right? We understand what the term grow means. You think of a plant growing. It's just growth, right? You think of a, a child growing, right? Physically speaking. It speaks of growth. But what are we to grow in? In the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, it's all about Jesus. It's all about our relationship with Jesus. It's not about theology. It's not about whatever it might be. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. Jesus is his human name, and you shall name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The term Jesus, Yahshua, means the Lord is salvation. The term Christ spoke of the anointed one, the Messiah King, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who would reign forever, but first would have to suffer before the glories to follow. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. You see, Jesus is Lord. And we must believe that he is Lord. He is the Lord of the heavens and the earth. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Back in chapter 1, verse 1, we saw the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, verse 20, the bad guys had known of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, verse 2, we are to remember the commandment of our Lord and Savior. And here we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. He's our Lord. He's our Lord. We're not God, he is. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. To be saved, you need to acknowledge him as Lord. Romans 10.9, you need to realize in your heart, and it obviously will come out in your mouth, with your mouth. But not only must we believe that he is Lord, we must believe he's Savior, and he is the Savior of the world. You see, God has made it clear that we are all sinful, and that he will punish sinners eternally, the wages of sin is death, but yet he sent his Son to die for our sins. He took on human flesh. He went to the cross. He paid the penalty for our sins. And whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You call upon Jesus. He is the only Savior. He is indeed the Savior of the world. He will save you from your sins. And we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's our Lord and he's our Savior. Notice we're to grow in the grace. That's his unmerited favor. That's the, the, the favor that he bestows upon, upon us. And he bestowed it initially when he came. For the grace of God has come, bringing salvation to all men. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It is all his favor upon us, and we believe in him we're saved. The Apostle Paul speaks of the grace of the Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for our sake, or his, for your sake, he became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich. Grace is summed up in the work and the person of Jesus Christ, all from him and nothing from us. So how do we grow in the grace of God right now that we're already saved? Folks, we function by his grace. It's all by his grace. Everything we do is by his grace. Everything. We're to function by it. Everything from God, nothing from us. Indeed, Peter would share in his first letter that even our spiritual gifting as we employ are manifestations of the manifold grace of God. What did the Lord Jesus share concerning weaknesses and grace to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12? He said, my grace is sufficient. You see, when we rely on the Lord, he enables us to do what he calls us to do. It's by his grace. We have, it's not because of us. It's his favor upon us. Chapter 1 of the same letter, he said that grace would be multiplied. May grace and peace be multiplied. The Christian life is about functioning in the grace of God. Everything from him, nothing from us. Remember, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. We're not adequate to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. We are to grow in that. Instead of being taken captive and led down the stream by our own desires and shipwrecked on the, on the rocks, we are to becoming more and more growing in our trust of Jesus 
And how do we do that? Faith comes from hearing him from the word. We, we rely on him. We allow his word to work in our hearts. We renew our minds. And not only are we to grow in his grace, we're to grow in the knowledge of our Lord, the epinosis, the fuller or true knowledge. It's relational knowledge. I gave this example before. We can know someone but not know them. I know, as I mentioned before, the present, but I don't know him. I don't have a relationship with him. And we have, because of the forgiveness of sins, a relationship with the living God. We can know him. We can know him. And we are to grow in the grace and knowledge. Those are the two things. Abiding and trusting him more, learning more about him. Abiding and trusting him more, knowing more about him. That's what we're to be doing as believers. As we wait for Christ to come, as he saves us. Let me share some passages on how we grow. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, let's turn there for a second and we'll finish up. You see, growth just doesn't come through wanting to grow. Growth comes through a means, a means. And guess what? That means is the means that these bad guys are trying to mess with. That's why Peter is saying, guard yourself. That's why. The means we grow in, our, in the grace of the Lord Jesus and the knowledge of him is through the word of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, notice this, which also performs its work in you who believe. Another passage, 1 Peter chapter 2. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. And this will give you the reason why so many people don't grow, even if they're in the word, by the way. Some people are in the word all the time. They're in good churches all the time. They're never growing. Why? 1 Peter chapter 2. Therefore, putting aside, here you go, you've got to put aside sin or you're not going to grow. Putting aside all, uh, all malice and all guile, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander, like newborn bays, 1 Peter 2, verse 1, long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord, if you're truly saved. You're not going to grow if you're not saved. It's through the word of God. And we saw lastly what Bob read earlier. Turn back to 2 Peter and go to chapter 1. This is what he shared in the beginning. It's through the word of God that we grow in the grace of our Lord. We become more and more dependent on Jesus. We become more and more knowledgeable of him in a real relationship. Not head knowledge, but a real relationship. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in what the knowledge of, our, of God and of Jesus our Lord seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. God uses his word to grow us in our relationship with him. If you are willing to confess sin, to set it aside, you will grow if you're in his word. If you're in his word, you will grow. And we are commanded, actually, to grow in the grace and knowledge. We're commanded to be on guard from those threats which will endanger our walk with Jesus. And we are commanded to grow. So guard and grow. Peter's last words. Guard and grow. Guard and grow. Guard against threats to the word of God and your walk with Jesus. And through the word of God... Grow in your relationship with Jesus. And lastly, notice Peter wants the Lord to get all the glory. End of verse 18. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. May Christ be glorified now and unto the day of eternity. May he be glorified. And how he's glorified is when we abide in him, we trust in him, we rely on him, we grow in the grace and knowledge of him, we obey him. Be on guard and grow. Let me ask you this. Are you on guard? Are you obeying the command? Have you fallen? Confess. God will forgive you. Be on guard and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this letter that we have studied, your word, Lord God. And I pray that we would be doing exactly what you said, that we would be on guard continually, 
against those threats that would those who would distort your word to pull us upon our own desires that we would not be shipwrecked Lord God that we'd be on guard and Father that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of your son Jesus Father I pray for anyone here who has never truly been saved by your grace in Christ they do not know Jesus that you would break through the hardened heart they may think they know him but their lives exhibit the reality there's no growth, there's no change, they're the same they've always been. I pray that you would convict their hearts if they're truly not saved. And Father, I pray for anyone here who has fallen, that they'd be restored and they would grow in the grace and knowledge of your Son. And then for all of us, Lord God, may we be on guard and may we grow in Jesus. It's in his name we pray.